Hofstadt. My name is Robert George, and I have the honor to be the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, which is sponsoring today's lecture as part of our uh, series on America's founding and future. For those of you who are familiar with Dr. Everstadt's work, you will know that he takes an intriguing look at America's future as well as Europe's as he examines trends in population growth and the political, economic, and social ramifications these may have. If people are the very soul of a nation, Dr. Eberstadt's research motions us toward an issue of utmost importance, namely the prospects of the continued vitality of most developed nations. For this reason, his talk today on the implications of underpopulation in America and Europe is a particularly good fit for a series on America's founding and future. Nicholas Everstadt holds the Henry Wendt Chair in Political Economy at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. He also serves as a senior advisor to the National Bureau of Asian Research. In these capacities, he consults widely with governments and international organizations. He's also served on the Board of Advisors of the Korea Economic Institute and is a founding board member of the United States Committee for Human Rights in North Korea. Professor Everstadt is the author, co-author, or editor of many books including Fault Lines in China's Economic Terrain, recently published in 2003, Korea's Future and the Great Powers, published in 2001, Comparing the Soviet and American Economies, published in 2000, The End of North Korea, published in 1999, The Tyranny of Numbers, Mismeasurement and Misrule, in 1995. In addition, uh, astonishingly, he's published almost 300 articles and studies on demographics, economic development, and international security. I wonder when he sleeps. Dr. Everstadt received his BA, MPA, and PhD from Harvard University and his Master of Science degree from the London School of Economics. We're delighted to have him here, so please join me in welcoming Dr. Nicholas Everstadt. Robbie, thank you very much. It's a real uh, pleasure for me to be here with you at Princeton, although, as I warned Professor George, uh, you've gotten the uh, consolation prize here. Uh, you can ask any of uh, my children, and they'll tell you that Mary's the smart one, so maybe later on in the program she'll be, uh, she'll be up. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure you all don't do this at Princeton, but... Um, when I was taking exams at Harvard, we kind of learned that if we were given a question that we couldn't answer, we'd kind of try to change the topic a little bit and answer something that, uh, that we might have uh, some information about. And you will notice that I have ever so slightly changed the, uh, the thematic that I'm uh, supposed to address here today. I believe my assignment was to address the question of implications of underpopulation for Europe and America, but I myself have a hard time wrapping my head around the concept of underpopulation. And the reason I have a difficult time uh, wrapping my head around the concept of underpopulation is that I don't think I can tell you exactly what overpopulation is. Um, I certainly can't define for you overpopulation in any unambiguous demographic manner. Uh, we may all uh, know it when we see it in our own, uh, in our own minds, 
But it's a, it's a very difficult thing to describe unambiguously with demographic criteria, and if that's true for overpopulation, it may be true for underpopulation as well. Uh, but I can tell you what depopulation looks like, and I thought that maybe what we do in the, uh, in the minutes ahead is talk about prospects for depopulation for uh, Europe broadly uh, construed, not just in the kind of uh, the Gaullist sense of uh, from the Atlantic to the uh, Urals, but maybe from the Atlantic all the way to the Vladivostok, uh, for Europe and uh, the America, North America. <clears throat> and um, what, I, what I'm going to show you in the next little while is a tale of three societies, a tale of three I think, very different societies. Those societies are uh, Russia, uh, Western Europe, and the United States of America. And um, demographic projections, uh, the demographic future is always uncertain. I don't think we can speak about it with any complete confidence. But I would submit to you three propositions. Uh, Russia is already in the midst of a precipitous demographic freefall and without currently, to me, unimaginable changes, it is hard to see how Russia will avoid continuing in its ongoing demographic decline. Uh, Europe is poised for depopulation for demographic decline over the coming generation or two. And while it is possible that such a demographic decline might eventually be avoided, it is hard for me to see the components of that avoidance coming into place. The United States, on the other hand, is a society which is currently characterized by demographic growth. And as far as the eye can see, in this lecture, this will be about half a century, which is actually further than the demographer's eye can accurately see. Uh, over the next half century, the sorts, uh, the sorts of conditions that would vitiate or confound continuing demographic growth in the United States would have to be utterly catastrophic. Barring demographic catastrophe, the United States is set to continue demographic increase. Uh, now, um, in the spirit of a picture being worth a thousand words, I'm going to try to hurry you all through about 45 minutes of lecture by showing you nine separate graphics, which I think outline, uh, outline one set of plausible futures, demographic futures for the United States and Russia and Western Europe. These are the U.S. Census Bureau's most recent projections. There is nothing particularly holy about any of these. They're based upon assumptions. The assumptions that the Census Bureau makes are slightly different from the assumptions that the U.N.'s Population Division makes, and we can argue about particular parts of them. But uh, take this as, uh, if you will, a sort of a temperature of what uh, informed demographers suspect right now the demographic future for these three different areas will look like. 
for the sake of illustration. This is what to a demographer Western Europe kind of looks like now. And by Western Europe, I don't mean the EU here. Uh, I'm taking the Census Bureau's designation of Western Europe, which um, takes everything uh, everything west of Poland, including going up to Scandinavia, down to Italy, down to Greece. Um, this is just take a look at the picture, uh, males and females, and these are millions uh, for the different uh, for the different birth cohorts here. This is for the year 2000. This is what uh, this is what census imagines Western Europe would look like 25 years from now. You'll see that in this future, this is the number of children. 2025, whereas this is in 2000. Fewer young people, many more old people. And let's just hop to 2050. This is Western Europe, um, or an imagined version of Western Europe's future. Uh, and you'll see that the area of the graphic tells you how many people there are in the whole. You can compare the area of the 2000 graphic against the 2050 graphic. Now let's see, uh, let's see what Russia looks like more or less now. Um, this is this is Russia in 2000. Russia in an imagined 2025. This is the number of children, uh, teenagers in 2000. This would be the number of teenagers in uh, 2025. And let's go to 2050. Um, more old people than today, but practically every younger group being smaller. Now let's uh, compare and contrast. Uh, here's the United States in 2000. This is the imagined version of the United States in 2025. And this is the imagined version in 2050. Compare and contrast. Um, let me go into some of the components, uh, components of these projections. Um, what's What's shaping Russia and Western Europe, and to some degree the United States, is a phenomenon known as sub-replacement fertility, which is to say birth patterns over time which result with fewer women in rising cohorts than among the mothers giving birth to those cohorts. Uh, this phenomenon of sub, this phenomenon of fertility decline in general is hardly new. Fertility decline is about sustained fertility decline is about two centuries old. It started in Europe. It started, in fact, in France. Uh, interestingly enough, around the time of the French Revolution. But it's a change which has gradually spread across the world 
irrespective of uh, language or ethnicity or even education and material attainment. And this um, blinding graphic, uh, don't have to pay attention to any of the numbers or boxes in it, is meant to impress this fact upon you. Uh, it's an estimate by the Census Bureau of fertility rates around the world more or less this year, projection for this year. And what we have up here are all of the little countries and regions where uh, sub-replacement fertility is believed to be prevalent at this point. Uh, 2.1 births per woman per lifetime being roughly the level for population stability and replacement. And if you... sub-replacement fertility. In fact, if you took all of these countries together and you added up their populations, you'd find that they account for just about half of the globe's total at the moment. Just about half of the world's people live in countries at the moment that are sub-replacement fertility societies. So we're looking at a particular instantiation of this in considering the circumstances of Western Europe and Russia and the United States, which at 2.07 births per woman per lifetime on this pattern is ever so slightly in the category of sub-replacement fertility at the moment. Um, <clears throat> I thought maybe I would show you uh, some of the differences that we're dealing with at the moment in Europe and Russia and the United States. And if you can read these figures, you'll see a sort of story Right about now, Russia's fertility level collapsed after uh, the fall of the communist system. Uh, it's about the level where it continued indefinitely to be 1.2 or 1.2 births per woman per lifetime. In Eastern Europe, the level at the moment is about 1.2 or 1.3 births per woman per lifetime. It is slightly, but not enormously higher in different parts of Western Europe, the 
in Ireland. Two births per woman per lifetime have continued. Um, but in Scandinavia, it's about 1.7, UK about 1.6, and then we get down to um, we get down to Catholic uh, Mediterranean Europe with Portugal and 1.4, and Spain at 1.2, and Italy at 1.2, and of course, one goes up in northern Italy, the levels are even. Lower. Um, this, these very, these very low levels of uh, fertility, the, uh, historically unprecedented for peacetime, non-catastrophic circumstances, uh, can be explained in approximate manner by looking at certain components and correlates. Um, over the past. 30 years, there has been essentially a collapse of the institution of marriage in Europe and uh, in Europe, East and West. And this, um, this, this chart is a misnomer. This should be 1970 against the year 2000, 2001. It, this chart shows uh, a kind of a synthetic indicator for marriage, which is if if a woman passed through her uh, teenage years and twenties and thirties and forties all in this single year, um, what what probability would there be that she would have ended up being married at some point uh, by the time she was fifty? And um, in most of Europe, uh, Sweden being the notable exception, but in most of Europe in nineteen seventy there was a very, very high probability that a woman would be married at some point before age 50. See, that's almost, the blue lines are almost all up at once. The red lines are today, and you can see in various parts of Western and Eastern Europe uh, how dramatically the formality of marriage has retreated as an ordinary part of social life. Um, with the retreat of the uh, commonplace of marriage, there's also been a corresponding drop in fertility within the institution of marriage. Uh, and in quite a few countries under consideration here, uh, current rates, if extrapolated into the future, would imply one or fewer births within the institution of marriage during lifetime. Uh, note that the countries with the highest marital fertility levels are the United States and Ireland, but even here we're talking about less than 1.4 such births per woman per lifetime at the moment. Um, but of course, besides marital births, there are extramarital births. And um, we've had a great discussion in the United States about the rise of out of wedlock or illegitimate or extramarital births over the period since the 1960s. And I don't mean to uh, 
diminish the magnitude and consequence of those changes. But as the um, great demographer uh, Waylon Jennings uh, said in a song once, uh, you should see the other guy. You'll get some appreciation of the sea change that has swept through uh, Europe from the Atlantic to Vladivostok. Remember that. Uh, remember that if we were trying to compare ethnic groups in some sort of more uh, race science uh, sort of way, we would probably want to compare. In the name non-Hispanic whites in the United States to yeah. the populations from which they, their ancestors have emigrated. This rate for the United States is a composite for all of our great mosaic. If we wanted to look at the rate just for non-Hispanic uh, whites in the United States today, it would be about 23%. It would be about here. And you'll notice that uh, that would be a lower rate than we see today for, for example, Catholic Portugal or Catholic Ireland or Catholic Poland or Catholic Lithuania or many of the other areas in Europe uh, that, uh, that might fall under consideration. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, the the reason that the reason that depopulation is a plausible prospect for some of these uh, countries and societies is that with uh, with subreplacement fertility for a sufficiently prolonged uh, period, death rates begin to exceed uh, birth rates, and already in Greater Europe, there are 18 countries at the moment that report more deaths than births in most recent data that I could assemble. Um, what we have here on this chart are the number of deaths for every 100 births reported in these societies. In some of these places, like Sweden and Greece, balance right now between births and death is fairly close. And you can imagine that this balance could be offset by migration. But in Eastern Europe, the situation is rather more stark. And especially in parts of the former Births, and this means that Russia is um, Russia is set for demographic decline. Um, 
These are Census Bureau estimates of total numbers of deaths, uh, births, and net migrants for Russia. And you'll see that by the Census Bureau's calculation, uh, Russia has suffered more or has experienced more deaths than births over the last 10 years since 1992. these numbers, these numbers from the Census Bureau, calculated by their own methods, are in some sense optimistic, because for 2000 and 2001 and 2002, uh, Goskomstadt figures record an excess of. Oh, yeah, thank you, thank you, Charlotte. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, they uh, Goskomstadt figures record a excess of deaths over births closer to one million persons a year. And for the period from 92 to last year's Russian census, uh, Goskomstad, I think, recorded a surfeit of 7 million deaths over births for this whole period. So Russia's population is already shrinking. Uh, To a certain degree, in migration of ethnic Russians from other parts of the near abroad has mitigated the decline, but Russia's census records that the population has declined over the past decade by about two million in net. And really, I guess the only question at this point uh, from our current vantage point is how quick the decline will be for, for Russian Federation. The Census Bureau and the UN uh, Population Division have different projections that they use with different assumptions, uh, obviously. Um, For what it's worth, I think that the Census Bureau's assumptions are somewhat optimistic. I'll try to explain why I think so in a few minutes. Um, What about the United States? As we saw a few graphics ago, the U.S. is a country which is almost at, or has been recently, almost at net population replacement fertility. Uh, The American trend is very different from the trend in any other uh, affluent OECD country, or for that matter in in, uh, Eastern Europe, or NIS. And it is characterized by an increase in the period total fertility rate over the period since the uh, since the 1970s. You can see that there. Uh, Canada, Quebec, both track trends that look very European. Uh, if one were to put the Canadian or the Quebec graphic onto a European board, you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell Canada's patterns apart from those of Western Europe. Uh, The United States certainly could. Um, And if you want to take a look at the U.S. by our uh, sort of a federal sense, uh, you can look at the difference of fertility patterns by state plus the District of Columbia. Um, As I recall, about 33 of our states recently report fertility levels of 2.0 or higher. The uh, 
the state with the lowest reported fertility is Vermont, in our genes, Vermont, with 1.55. George W. Bush's Texas reports about uh, 2.5, as I recall, almost a birth per woman per lifetime difference. But almost any of these, almost any of these uh, states, with the exception of the New England grouping, would stand out separately and distinctly from any numbers that one would gather from greater Europe. They're just so much higher. And some of them, I mean, for instance, for Utah, just extraordinarily higher. Utah's, uh, Utah's rate is higher than Mexico's. Um, now, what does, um, what, what are some of the components in, that one would see in looking at little bits and pieces of those population pyramids that, uh, that I showed you earlier. Um, one, uh, one set of trends uh, pertinent to all of us, I think, uh, is the inexorable population aging that would be occurring over this long period under consideration. And uh, population aging will occur in the United States in Europe and Russia, uh, barring only absolute utter catastrophe, because it is set in motion by relatively low mortality and low fertility, working their way through, uh, through population structure. But what you see is that very different trends are implied for the United States and for Russia and for greater Western Europe. If one takes these projections uh, seriously or plays with them through to their conclusions, uh, Western Europe would be imagined or envisioned to have a median age, kind of a 50% age, of almost 50. Uh, almost half of the population of Western Europe in this imagined future would be uh, over the age of 50. Um, Russia's median age in this imagined future would be close to that, would be in the high, uh, I guess the high 40s. It, Russia in this future would be older than any, uh, any population in the world today. Uh, but not the United States. By 2050, in these projections, the United States would still be less gray than some places in Europe and Asia that we can walk to, fly to today. And as you can see, given the projections, uh, population aging would decelerate in the United States uh, in, in, this, in this imagined future. We can argue about how realistic these projections are. I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, one component of society I think that's always um, interesting to know about are the Youths 15 to 24 years of age, they uh, embody physical beauty, they bring new ideas, they're hard to socialize, and they fight our wars. So there are good reasons to pay attention to the size and health of this particular cohort. And as you'll see, uh, this cohort, the absolute size of this group uh, drops very dramatically in Russia future set of projections, doesn't entirely disappear 
but drops very substantially. A gradual decline of this cohort group is envisioned for Western Europe, whereas in the United States, this group, at least in absolute numbers, is imagined to continue to increase. But Western Europe and Russia are both good at producing older people in this set of projections. And as you'll see, Europe is imagined to reach a situation where almost 30% of the population is 65 years of age or older. Russia approaches this asymptote, but not the United States in these projections. By 2050, in those population pyramids I showed you earlier, there would be about two and a half people over the age of 65 for every person under the age of 15 in Europe. There would be just about twice as many 65-pluses as 0 to 14s in Russia. But in the United States, there would be just about the same number of people under 15 and 65-plus. And actually, the proportion of people in the United States 15 years of age or under 15 would be almost the same in 2050 as it is today. So what are some of the consequences, implications of these prospective trends? I'll lay out four different areas here we could think about. Impact on economic performance, on family structure, on domestic ethnic composition, and on international security or balance of power. One immediate area where there might be an economic impact of these trends would be on pay-as-you-go national pension systems. And sub-replacement fertility, not to put too fine a point on it, is rather unforgiving to pay-as-you-go pension systems, especially if they wish to be generous. When we consider all of the anxiety, reasonable anxiety, that people in the United States have in their discussions about the future of the U.S. Social Security system, it's also useful to put this into perspective. These are some numbers from a couple of years ago calculated by economists at the OECD to try to estimate the size of various OECD countries' unfunded pension liability in relation to national output. And at that time, it was estimated that the U.S. unfunded liability was equivalent of just under a quarter of a year's GDP. But you'll see that many other countries in Western Europe had rather large unfunded liabilities. Denmark is almost 10 times as great as that in the United States in proportional terms. My own reaction to this is maybe somewhat contrarian. I'm actually somewhat cautiously optimistic about these numbers because I don't think that there's a commandment that establishes that national pension systems must be pay-as-you-go. It's possible to change to more actuarially sound approaches. And this is just one small component 
of an overall macroeconomy in which consumption and investment and technology and many other factors uh, bear upon economic performance. Uh, to oversimplify terribly, it seems to me that it is counterintuitive at the least to think that the revolution in health, which has provided for, in the main, this aging phenomenon, must necessarily lead to national bankruptcy. That does not seem to me to be a conclusion that automatically follows. In a world defined by healthy aging, there are all sorts of possibilities for the participation and contribution economically of people in their older ages. Um, and taking advantage of that potential uh, will have a great deal to do with the sorts of performance we see in the United States and Western Europe and elsewhere. However, not all uh, countries under consideration are enjoying a process of healthy aging. Um, this is a graphic showing, uh, showing different cohorts mortality patterns for Japan, which may be at the moment the healthiest society on Earth. And you'll see that with each birth cohort, the death rates are lowered. They go down by, by birth cohort. Now let me show you Russia. Uh, there has been no noticeable reduction in death patterns, death schedules, for Russian men from one cohort to the next, from one generation to the next. Um, and in fact, if you look at the most recent figures, uh, they're highest. Um, <clears throat> Russia has suffered a stagnation and decline of life expectancy over the past 40 years. And it's been a particularly brutal decline in life expectancy over the past 10 years. Uh, I've compared here life expectancy for men in Russia uh, against India, uh, Bangladesh, and Pakistan. Uh, the Census Bureau's projections are that Russia's male life expectancy may get up to India's level more or less by now. But uh, it's been new numbers suggest actually something rather less the most recent data for Russia are that life expectancy for men is about 58 places about here, below Pakistan, below Bangladesh. Um, we're not seeing healthy aging in Russia, and for reasons I'd be happy to share with you, I think, it's, I think it would be a heroic success if Russian men are able to replicate Indian male life expectancies any time in the next 10 years or so. Um, the, uh, what about family, uh, family relations and the impact of sub-replacement fertility on uh, tenor of family life? Well, depending upon the distribution of, um, uh, of births, uh, it is possible to imagine two generations from now that an entirely new set of social arrangements could emerge from some of these societies which is to say uh, countries in which the majority of young people have no siblings, no uh, uncles or aunts, no cousins. There's simply people that they are connected to by 
bloodline as ancestors. Uh, and I mean, if one if one imagines Italy's current fertility circumstances continuing for another 50 years, Italy would be a country where more than half of the rising generation would be characterized in such a manner. Um, just how people will be socialized in such a world, what that would look like is rather difficult for me to imagine, but that isn't to say that it won't occur. Uh, kind of a bridge generation, you know, kind of like between the oral and the written tradition, between the time when people had siblings and cousins and the times when they didn't. Um, the United States does not seem to be in any, uh, you know, in any immediate risk of having uh, this new imagined form of family relations dominate. But the United States has a family structure problems of its own, as we know very well. And this graphic, I think, illustrates these. It's, uh, it's some estimates on the number of years out of the first 15 years of life that a child can expect to be a, uh, not live in the presence of both of his biological parents. And as, a, as of the late 1990s, uh, an American child could expect to live only about 10 of its first 15 years with both parents together. Um, these numbers are probably changing very rapidly in Europe for the reasons that I showed you with this collapse of marriage and the rise of extramarital fertility. But uh, as of now, uh, the United States uh, seems to be in the um, uh, unwanted position of winner of this particular race. Um, now, what about um, ethnic composition, immigration? Uh, it, it's possible for uh, it's possible for affluent countries to stave off uh, population decline. Of course, all they'd have to do is admit the requisite number of newcomers and assimilate them uh, to prevent either population decline or decline in the size of their population of economic uh, economically active ages. And what I put up here are some. And hypothetical numbers that the United Nations Population Division did uh, a couple of years ago trying to show what we have to be talking about in such cases. Well, um, the United States, um, the United States, for example, would require, I think they said uh, at that time, something like 465,000 immigrants a year to stave off the UN's imagined curve of depopulation for the future. The UN posits somewhat lower fertility levels than the Census Bureau does for the United States. That's why that particular number. And to keep the uh, keep the so-called working age group constant, about a million, uh, 1.3 million people a year over this period over the next half century, these these levels are much lower than the actual level of American immigration over this period of time, over the recent period of time. But if you take a look at Europe as a whole, uh, much greater levels of immigration would be needed than would be needed, say, 
here and here that have been seen recently. And of course, uh, same is true for the European Union. You can look at different countries up there as well. Much greater levels of immigration than have recently been seen. And there would also be consequences in the change in composition of these uh, formerly geographically European countries. Um, for the European Union, for example, if, um, if the economically active age group were to be maintained at a constant size over the next half century in the year 2050, about a quarter of the population in 2050 would be uh, such immigrants or the descendants of such immigrants. And for Italy, almost 40% of the population. Germany, over a third. You can see the numbers there. Uh, implying a considerable change in the community designated within those geographical boundaries. It's an exercise in arithmetic. Um, but in the United States, once again, we've got this strange demographic exceptionalism, at least so far. Um, if one takes a look at the U.S. Uh, in the recent year, our total fertility level is about two births per woman per lifetime. And um, there, there's quite a bit of similarity between different groups. If you take a look at the Anglos, you know, the white non-Hispanics, we're talking about a fertility level of 1.8, which you'll remember is higher than almost any place in the European continent. Um, the, although much has been made about fertility differences between African Americans and Anglos, if you take a look at the actual numbers, it's a difference now of about 10%, a little bit more than 10%. And the Americans with the lowest fertility level are Native Americans, at least as self-represented in this chart. Cuban Americans have lower fertility levels than Anglos. Uh, the, um, the Asian Americans not shown here have the lowest fertility levels are Japanese Americans at about 1.1 or 1.2 and Chinese Americans at about 1.4. Um, that's, those, that's also, incidentally, the range for uh, American Jews at, at this uh, point in time, roughly speaking. Um, but there's a, uh, in these, uh, these minority ethnicities, there has been a, so-called minority ethnicities, there's been a gradual convergence towards kind of white or Anglo fertility levels. Uh, giving no explanation for this, I'm observing a fascinating fact. Um, which is to say, if this convergence continues, and continues into the future, which it may not, if it does, most of the changes in ethnic composition in the United States will be due to migration, not to any particular differences between birth patterns and existing groups in the United States. Now, what about, uh, what about geopolitics and the impact of population change here? Um, it's, uh, I think, the impact of population change on the political balance is often in the eye of the beholder. We all think that population makes a difference in politics and maybe even in world affairs. But if 
we were to write down on a piece of paper what those differences are, I'm not sure that they would all look the same. It's a bit of a Rorschach test for people. Um, it is, I think, however, fair to say that it is, um, while a large population size does not guarantee a country influence on the world stage, it's kind of a sine qua non for being a, uh, being a modern state with considerable reach and ability to impress one's uh, objectives upon other states. Um, if we take a look at the trends that we've experienced over the last half century and these trends which are imagined for the coming half century, we see a kind of an interesting uh, set of discrepancies here, divergences. Russia is basically falling off the map. Russia, of course, was embedded in the Soviet Union then. We're pretending it could be treated separately in 1950 here. But if we look at the population of Russia by itself, the Russian Federation, it drops from about 4% of the world total to a imagined future of about 1% of the world total. Um, Western Europe uh, follows a uh, not quite so precipitous decline drops from about 12% to about 4%. Look what happens to the United States. Starts at about 6%, drops to a little under 5%, 4.5%, and then holds steady. It's very, it's the American exception once again. Um, and you can see it again if we put up on the board here the Census Bureau's estimates and projections for populous regions. And of course, uh, I've, um, I've made Western Europe into a single political entity there, uh, which it is not even today, but just for consideration. Uh, you see that in 1950, India and Western Europe were roughly comparable in absolute population size. By 2050, India will be over four times as large, it's imagined here, as Western Europe. Western Europe will actually be more comparable with Indonesia and Nigeria in this imagined future. Uh, Russia starts out as the fifth largest entity under consideration here. Barely manages to make it on the board ahead of Vietnam, the next most populous country in this listing for 2050. But what happens with the United States? The United States is fourth and fourth and third. Um, I wouldn't want to um, I wouldn't want to suggest that demography is destiny in any sort of Auguste Comte sort of sense. I mean he was a Frenchman and a socialist, and I'm neither of those things. <laughs> but uh, Demographic trends probably do alter the realm of the possible. And the strange, exceptional trends that we've seen in the United States, which distinguish the U.S. from other developed, affluent societies, are worth noting and appreciating because they may have considerable influence on the way that our children and their descendants live and on the sort of world they inhabit. Um, I'll stop here and be happy to discuss anything that you'd like.
Thank you, Nick. The floor is open. Our Custom in the Madison program is be to begin by asking whether any students uh, have questions. Are there any student questions? Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Fifteen, uh, zero to fourteen years of age. Uh, oh, zero to fourteen. Yeah. Do you mind? Sure. Yeah. Let's see. I think I think I've got. I'll be happy to give you the actual printouts, uh, which which show these uh, with more detail than I can uh, report. For Russia, in this imagined twenty fifty future, there'd be about two. Older people, 65 plus, for every kid under the age of 15. In Western Europe, in this imagined future, there'd be about two and a half people, 65 plus, for every kid under 15. And in the United States, there'd be just about an even balance. It'd be 20.6 percent. 65 plus, 19.7 percent under 15. So almost exact even balance. Very different composition. And strangely enough, uh, in the year 2000, in our country, there were 21.4 percent of the population under 15. In 2050, in these projections, it's 19.7. Almost no change. Other students? Yes. Yes, sir. The, the Islamic expanse has got great heterogeneity in it, linguistic and ethnic, historical. And if you take a look at the expanse from, let's, let's leave out Indonesia and the Philippines, let's just go like from uh, Casablanca to Kabul, let's say, and leave out all the people, who, Muslims who live in India, Bangladesh, and all that. Um, you will find parts of the Islamic expanse where sub-replacement fertility is already the norm. Um, Turkey, Tunisia, um, Muslim Lebanon. Um, I'll give you an interesting one, Iran. Over the last 25 years, uh, the fertility level in Iran is believed to have dropped by, oh, by just about two-thirds under the clerisy. Um, and so this, this suggests that a revolution in attitude towards the family and maybe towards other things 
has already been in place in different parts of a world that's often stereotyped as being utterly traditional and unmoving. If you take a look at northern Africa, the Maghreb area, fertility levels have probably dropped by over half in the last generation there. Um, they're still above replacement, but they've been plummeting downwards with really exceptional speed. There are parts of the Islamic expanse where there's been very little change, as far as we can tell, in fertility levels. Uh, Yemen, Afghanistan, uh, parts of Saudi Arabia. Um, and the um, Gaza, Palestinian Gaza, West Bank, different. But, uh, but those, are, those are the areas of the Islamic expanse where, uh, where there has at least to date been resistance against this tidal wave of fertility change. Other student questions? Yes. Uh, It's a very good question. Um, it's been, the response has been, uh, in terms of words, the response has been all over the map. From let's talk about something else to uh, invoking uh, the late Senator Moynihan and his, uh, and his work. Um, in, um, I think actually it's, Actually, it's mostly in the UK that one finds an invocation of Moynihan's uh, work and findings, less so in the continent. Um, but as a, um, as a practical matter, there has been almost no policy attention or policy response to this very vivid change in living arrangements. Uh, why? There are probably a lot of different stories as to why. Um, one of the stories is that uh, Western European governments, uh, to the extent that they think about and pay attention to the specter of depopulation, seem to be quite happy to get births any way that they can. Um, to a um, to a, somebody who does population arithmetic. Um, out-of-marriage births are not a good way to raise long-term fertility levels just because the support structure isn't the same as for a two-parent household. And over time, uh, total fertility levels outside of marriage almost always tend to be lower than in two-parent households. Um, but as part of a broader proposition, the European societies still, I think, have enormous difficulty talking about the phenomenon. Um, the, the facts are not agreed upon because nobody wants to discuss them, much less look at their implications. Other student questions? If not, the floor is open. You, sir. As a, um, as a factor that might alter fertility in the future. Well, in, in almost 
almost all of the countries under consideration here. There are a literal handful of exceptions. But in almost all of the countries under consideration here, at least for now, uh, uh, unrestricted access to abortion is, uh, is, current, uh, is currently the legal and political reality. Um, there are attempts to, uh, there are attempts at the moment, as I'm sure you've been following or heard about, to uh, bring greater restrictions on abortion in Russia. It's an argument in Poland. There's a discussion in uh, Ireland. Well, that's about liberalizing abortion. Most of these, um, most of these are societies where abortion rights are already codified in uh, in law, and the actual the actual impact long term of changing abortion regulations is not necessarily clear. I'll give you an example. Uh, in Romania, back in the 1960s, in the good old days of Nicolae Ceausescu, uh, the Ceausescu uh, dictatorship decided that Romanians were having too few babies. And so without warning overnight, uh, an edict was passed that there would be no more access to abortion in Romania. Um, and since, as in other uh, Soviet-style systems, abortion was the main form of fertility control in Romania at that time, you can imagine the impact. Romania's birth rate the next year doubled. But then it turned out something uh, occurred that uh, Ceausescu had not taken into consideration is that Romanians did not think that babies came from under cabbages. They thought that there were alternative ways of limiting uh, fertility or uh, avoiding pregnancy. And so by um, just a few years later, Romania's birth rate was down more or less where it had been before this edict had gone into place. So as long as the, um, as long as the determining factor in fertility patterns is parental volition, something like abortion restrictions or abortion liberalization can make a kind of a temporary impact upon year-to-year you know, -year fertility trends, but they're probably not going to have a big impact on long-term trends. Professor Kelly. Um, it's a very interesting question. It's a very interesting question. Um, there aren't really any, there aren't really any robust, broad theories of fertility change that hold up terribly well in, in my uh, reading. Um, so. The, in all sorts of different circumstances, particular factors, you know, different settings, particular factors can look to be important. I tend to, I tend to suspect that the, that one of the important aspects of this demographic exceptionalism for the United States is the difference in religiosity 
that one sees between the United States population and most of the populations in Europe, East or West at the moment. Um, and if one were to speculate about this, we could say that uh, a, uh, a greater degree of religiosity in the United States might be consistent with different sorts of outlooks and attitudes about the family, views of confidence about the future, and things like that. Um, but I don't have a single piece of data to bring to bear to substantiate that kind of speculation. Um, and if one, um, if one looks at other places in the world, that I think I, some of the places I just mentioned, like Tunisia or Iran or um, Turkey, would we, all of which are sub-replacement fertility societies, would we say that they are less religious than, you know, equally religious, less religious than the United States? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult comparison for me to make, but I think it's a really intriguing question. Well, clearly it does in some places. I mean, with Utah, right? Well, yeah, I was struck by Vermont and Utah. Yeah, I mean, that right. seems to be the... Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes. So, so clearly, clearly it does in some places. Um, uh, Nick, have Zimmerman's historical studies of the relationship between secularization and uh, uh, population held up? Mm. Looking, looking back into antiquity. Is it all speculating? I, um, I don't know enough about it. You yeah. probably can answer the question. Uh, yes, yes. Yes. It's a period rate rather than a cohort rate. At, at, no, it, it, a very important technical point is the discrepancy between cohort and period fertility because we are looking here at period rates and extending them out as if they will, you know, as, as if they will uh, go on indefinitely. When, when, I, when we looked at the U.S. there, we saw that rise in U.S. fertility, as you appreciate very well. But, um, the period rate rose because there was a change in timing in fertility between the 70s and today. Um, and yes, it, it is the, the game isn't over until the, uh, you know, until the fat lady sings or the baby cries or whatever metaphor one wishes to use. But um, one has to posit some pretty remarkable changes in timing in some of those European populations to imagine, a, you know, kind of a homeostatic mechanism coming into play. And that, but as you say, I mean, we're looking. We do not know where things. There, there are no, there are no robust uh, techniques by which to anticipate with any reliability how many babies the unborn are going to be having out in 2050.
Yes. Yep. No. Fair point. Fair point. Mr. Ellis. In um, the da the data on the data on fertility by immigrants and ethnicity for different European countries are kind of a patchwork quilt, not collected the same in different countries in Europe. And I think in particular, uh, there, are, there are some there are some countries which collect data by religion, so you can find out. There are other countries in which you have to kind of infer, I suppose you can reasonably infer about immigrants from Pakistan uh, by ethnicity. And I think the, the general picture that one sees is of assimilation. So after a generation or a little more, fertility patterns for newcomers start looking like the society in which they enter. And so, um, so for the most part, I think one would have to be talking about very substantial streams of newcomers from Islamic societies to get, uh, you know, to get kind of like tilting point or tipping point sorts of uh, uh, scenarios. Yes. Yes. than their mother did, yes. and deciding to have zero children for you know, the long-term care and old age and all yep. that. Does your research indicate what part of all this is zero children? Um, well, you know, in, in Western Europe, I mean, Western European history, uh, West, Western Europe was the demographic exception during the period immediately before, uh, before the Industrial Revolution in that it was the first part of the world in which an appreciable portion of each birth cohort opted voluntarily for childlessness. Um, and you know, depending upon which part of Western Europe one looked at, uh, you could talk about 10 to 15 to 20 percent of birth cohorts in the 17th and 18th centuries uh, you will opting for childlessness, and that was because, as a, you know, a social construct, uh, to you know, oversimplify greatly, um, Western Europe made, made the possibility or the social construct of honorable bachelorhood and honorable spinsterhood possible. All this is a way of saying that childlessness is not a particularly new phenomenon in Western Europe. The pattern was very different east of the uh, east of the Danube, uh, where near universal marriage was the norm, as in much of the rest of the world. Um, but we, we've seen, we, I think, we've seen in much of Western Europe, a up until recently, a coincidence of lower fertility and uh, lower childlessness. But this seems to be changing. This seems to be changing now. Although of course we won't know these, we won't know the exact numbers until these uh, birth cohorts g 
get uh, get through their childbearing years. Yes. Yes, of course, after the Iraq-Iran War, the uh, family planning policy went into effect, but as you also indicated, the interaction between government policy and popular attitudes is a very complex one, and that's it's true about all family planning policies all over the world. How, there, there, there are many family planning programs who would like to take uh, credit for 350% of uh, all the fertility decline that's occurred in, you know, in societies. But you understand it's very difficult to apportion this. Um, yeah, I, I, did, I did skip over uh, once, perhaps too lightly, the Hispanic uh, contribution to, uh, to fertility in uh, levels in the United States and I suppose in particular to Mexican-American. Uh, the difference between Mexican-American fertility levels and that of the U.S. as a whole, um, I, think that, I think that Mexican-American fertility levels until quite recently have been overestimated because of the underestimate of the Mexican-American population due to the undercount. But that doesn't answer the whole question. That just... <laughs> It, it changes it. It changes, but doesn't eliminate the uh, the difference. I mean, I, I think I, I think National Center for Health Statistics dropped its fertility estimate for Mexican Americans from 3.2 to 2.7 after the 2000 census. But 2.7 is still, as you indicate, a whole lot higher than 2.0 or 1.8 for the Anglo's. Um, and um, I mean. As for fewer people being a um, 
being a bad thing. Um, I don't think that I don't think that more people is uh, necessarily a good thing or fewer people a bad thing. I think that with with population change in general, the implications are ambiguous and depend upon how opportunities are used and how problems are avoided. Um, I think that uh, I think that increases in death rates and deteriorations in health are self-evidently a negative. Um, but as for the uh, as for population change that comes from you know, in in a in a setting of improving health, uh, I think I think there's quite some ambiguity there, and um, I, I wouldn't uh, I, I do not believe that I do not believe that more people is self-evidently better or that fewer people is self-evidently bad. Yes, ma'am. Uh, well, back in back in the time of back in the time of Ben Franklin, I think the um, I think the American total fertility rate period total fertility rate was about seven births per woman per lifetime. So it's a lot lower now than it was then. What was the rate of It was, I, I think the. And I think people heard Mike's question. Can you yeah, yeah. Net, 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 net reproduction. Yeah, um, I think I think it would have been about a, a net reproduction rate of two and a half, maybe. I mean, it was it, it wasn't all it wasn't all babies that were just dying off. It was it was pretty high, uh, but I mean, I think one of the um, the United States, United States migration has always been a story of them coming here and how will we ever assimilate them. And at first, them was uh, Germans, and them was uh, Irish Catholics, and then them was uh, Italians, and then them were Eastern Europeans and Jews. And, you know, uh, Certainly, wasn't was a story uh, that wasn't a, you know a, a flawless success all along the way. But uh, the American assimilation model has worked tolerably well for two centuries, and so uh, you know uh, gives me some hope that it may continue to work. Yes, sir. Rather than something that you can see in which, and clearly we're not seeing a lot of, and I, the question you have to 
Mm -hmm. the day, it's the older piece of the pot, say people over 60, that whether it's done through government transfer payments or whether it's in dividends, dividends which are generated by companies that are run by much more younger people, really, those 60 and above essentially are using what they have built up over the years in an economy that they can live. And as a consequence, the younger piece of that pot has to provide mm -hmm. that. Well, I suppose it's good to have all producers and no consumers. <laughs> Except that it's, it's, it's very difficult in a service economy, in a knowledge economy, to have all producers and no consumers. <laughs> because consuming is producing increasingly uh, in, a, uh, in the sort of economy we're evolving into. But it's part of, part of the difficulty in answering the question, though, or in thinking it through, is with healthy aging, you know, where, where is the cutoff point? Uh, I mean, we know legally where the cutoff point is when you can... Europe, Europe is full of healthy Yes. So who wouldn't work another day to paint them? Yes. What's going on over there? Yes. So, um, That's right. Right. And this is, this is the problem in kind of specifying this, because in, in, in Europe, I mean, also to a degree in the United States, uh, we've had the coinciding tendencies of improving life expectancy and declining uh, participation rates in the labor force for people, say, 55 to 64. Like that. Um, one of, part, of the, part of the reason for the decline in labor force participation for that group is as affluence. It's a, uh, leisure is a luxury. Uh, leisure is a luxury good, and people, uh, you know, Showing that they live in the lap of luxury, I guess. Um, there's, there's all sorts of, there are all sorts of arguments that um, I'm maybe a little bit less sympathetic to than others about um, demographic dividends that can accrue from particular population structures. And I mean, in one fashionable argument right now, att attempts to uh, attribute much or most of East Asia's economic success to demographic dividend, to the, uh, uh, the conjunction of a small proportion of aged population and a decline in youth population, an increase in this economic, potentially economically active population uh, from, the peer, from 1960 to the present. Say much of East Asia's performance is due to this. Uh, and it, it's an intriguing argument as far as it goes. And as far as it goes is until you compare East Asia to the Caribbean, because a lot of Caribbean countries had very similar demographic trends over this period of time. But we don't find, uh, we don't find the same people trying to explain the Jamaican economic miracle by these uh, demographic factors. Yes, sir. Thank you. 
been much more of a well, the, the largest inflows of immigrants over the past 30 or so years have been Hispanic and Asian American. Um, for Asian Americans as a whole, Fertility levels are, I'd have to go back and look at those numbers. I seem to recall that they're slightly lower than so-called Anglos at the moment. Um, is that right? Yeah. So it's just, just ever since anyway, 1.840 versus 1.843 in a period, you know, snapshots. About, about the same as for Anglos. But that's for, that's not just for the immigrants, that's for all Asian Americans. Uh, Hispanic um, is a different matter, as we discussed earlier. Um, we're talking about a total fertility rate of about 2.7 for Hispanic Americans, so that's higher. Uh, but I think the, the largest, the largest component of U.S. population at the moment is uh, is this, this so-called Anglo group. Uh, and fertility levels there are much higher than uh, much higher than anything in Eastern Europe, and much higher than almost anything in most things, let's say, in Western Europe for that particular component. Yes, sir. Well, I'm struck by the moderation you mentioned that the Well, um, as, as you surely know, uh, my friend and former colleague Julian Simon had a slightly different view about this. I think Julian, um, rest his soul, bless his soul, uh, believed that um, population growth was a, was a good thing. And, I, and that, was a, that was an ethical, you know, what do you say, that was a metaphysical precept. It wasn't some, I don't think it was something that you can prove. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's, Julian, uh, Julian Simon came up with a number of economic models that would, that argued or indicated that population growth would have economically beneficial impact. But as you appreciate very well, the devil is always in the details of the assumptions he put into a model. And, um, I, you know, uh, bless, uh, bless Ansley Cole, uh, greatest uh, demographer uh, in, certainly I ever came across. Uh, the devils were in the details of the Cole Hoover model too. Uh, depending upon you tell you tell me what the model looks like, and I'll tell you what it's going to give you. Um, as far as um, 
as far as people agitating for um, pro-population pro growth policies in Europe today, uh, my impression is they're on, completely on the fringe. And uh, they're, uh, they're treated as crackpots in the political discussion, and some of them are. So is the debate between people who think that depopulation is a good thing and people like yourself who are neutral as to whether it's a good thing? I don't, I mean, I don't think that Europe has, at least my impression is, that European political discourse has not yet embraced the notion of prospective depopulation or its implications. It has begun to deal with components, which is unsustainable national pension systems. Uh, it has dealt with components such as uh, the question about immigrants and uh, how will how is it possible to reconcile the uh, nation state with a social welfare state. But the the essential phenomenon hasn't been addressed frontally yet. And in the situation in Western Europe, and much of Western Europe, isn't as profound as the prospect for depopulation, for example, in Japan today, uh, where five decades of sub-replacement fertility and, a, let's say, an allergy to immigrants uh, has made for an arithmetic situation which is, you know, which makes steep depopulation a pretty plausible prospect. But even in Japan, uh, there has been, there's been almost, there's been marginal, very marginal discussion of uh, the fact and reality of, uh, of depopulation momentum. Uh, but then again, in Japan, uh, it's not clear that the prospect of depopulation is the most imminent uh, political concern. So, so uh, what is the position of the people who are the equivalent to yourself, the moderate, reasonable people on the left? What's their opinion? Mm. Society is adjust with uh, with intelligent preparations and adjustments. You can deal um, you deal with prolonged population uh, losses or population decline. Um, and it's not, it's not clear they're entirely wrong about this either. Um, in Europe, I think Paul Domain pointed out in an essay a little while ago, uh, Europe's population increased by a factor of 10 over a number of previous centuries. If it, uh, if it goes into a kind of a Spenglerian decline for a couple of centuries, it'll still be larger than it was at the time of the Black Death. <laughs> um, I think we have time for one more question. Uh, yes, Professor Hedrick. Aside from immigration policy, what sort of things can government and society do to move population in one if one wanted to have pro-natalist policies, let's say, if one wanted to affect a upsurge in, a sustained upsurge in birth rates for the United States or some of these European societies, I think one would have two alternatives, two plausible alternatives. Uh, one would be to manufacture a religious revival of some particular 
variant or variety. And the other would be to pay uh, women, in effect, to be baby ranchers. Um, the, there have been there have been pronatalist policies in various parts of the developed world, as you know, over the past several generations, and there were before, before World War II. Um, but those policies are mainly distinguished by their marginal or limited impact, and often by simply seeming to change the timing of births rather than you know, aggregate births in a given birth cohort. Um, to get into real increases in birth rates, I think the government would have to get into the business of employing women to be just mothers. And that's a big ticket item. If you think that Social Security payments look imposing, think about what that would entail. Thank you, uh, Dr. Thank you very much.